This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Hello again, and welcome to our third installment of the Innovations series, Shaping the Future of Parkinson's Disease Treatments. Thanks again for joining us, and I really appreciate all the support that uh, our guests and attendees have provided to this center and to the Department of Neurosciences. I'm James Brewer, uh, Department of Neurosciences Chair. Very proud to lead this remarkable department that uh, includes both basic science researchers and top-notch clinicians, and I think that's our special sauce here at UC San Diego that makes the Department of Neurosciences, the number one NIH-funded neurosciences department in the nation, and uh, actually leading the way in developing new therapies across a broad range of diseases in the neurological space. Uh, Yesterday, we talked a lot about care beyond the clinic. That was really exciting to talk about innovations that are happening in the clinical setting. Uh, And then on Monday, we had discussed wearable technologies, which represents how the Department of Neurosciences interacts across this multifaceted campus to link up even with engineering experts uh, to innovate in uh, new approaches to diagnose and treat and monitor Parkinson's disease. Today, we have a very special treat for you to, to really demonstrate another side of our cross-campus collaborations, where we work very closely with the most uh, innovative basic neurosciences and molecular biology pathways to help bring forth new therapies for Parkinson's disease. Uh, I think you're going to really enjoy today's uh, talk, which brings really world leaders in molecular biology and imaging techniques, structural biology, looking at the very basic functions of the molecules that lead to diseases in the nervous system. So at this point, I wanted to introduce Irene Litvan, the director of the Center for Parkinson's Disease and Other Movement Disorders. You're all very familiar with her, and she's going to take it from here. Irene? Thank you, uh, Dr. Brewer. Uh, It is my pleasure to say hi and welcome all of you. I am the director of the Parkinson's and Other Movement Disorder Center. I'm a movement disorder specialist. And it is my pleasure to really bring you a little bit of the uh, translation to the clinic of what is going to be talking uh, today about this wonderful uh, group of investigators that UCSD has and has advanced in the development of ways of understanding the structure and the function of this gene that is called LRRK2. So LRRK2 is a gene that is present in like approximately 5% of the patients that have a family history of Parkinson's disease. And it's transmitted um, in an autosomal way. That is, if someone has it, then 50% of the kids will have it. But there is also uh, 1% of the general population that may have spontaneous mutations. And nowadays it is also understood that LRRK2 has a role in what we call idiopathic Parkinson's disease. Parkinson's disease in which there is no family history and there are no uh, clear mutations. 
So understanding its function uh, is extremely important in order to develop new therapeutics. Currently, there is one therapeutics that is a small molecule that is being developed by Denali and Biogen, but more uh, therapeutics and more approaches are always very important. So we're looking forward to hearing all the wonderful things that this group is doing and is gonna teach us about the functions of LRRK2. So thank you for having me, uh, Dr. Brewer, uh, for you to continue. Thank you so much. And so I guess this is a, an opportunity for you to learn about the basic principles of what undergoes, uh, what happens in the molecular pathways that lead to uh, Parkinson's disease. I welcome you to use the Q&A throughout. We will gather those questions and we will answer them at the end. Uh, with that, I'm happy to start the presentation. Hello, everyone, and thank you so much for joining us uh, today. And, and let us tell you um, uh, a little bit about our work. So this is the the team. Uh, we're going to introduce ourselves and uh, tell you, you know, how we got to where uh, we are as, as scientists. Um, uh, Sam is going to uh, start uh, doing that. Then uh, Elizabeth will introduce herself. Then I will, and finally Andy. And then I will come back and we'll tell you about our work on LARC2 and Parkinson's disease. And the, the work I'm going to tell you about today was published in uh, two papers last year in these um, uh, journals. And I want to point out that this work has been funded by and continues to be funded by the uh, Michael J. Fox Foundation. And also as a result of the work I'm going to tell you about today, uh, we got a large grant from Aligning Science uh, across uh, Parkinson's. So with that, I'm going to pass it on to Sam. Hi, I'm Sam Rick Peterson. Um, I was uh, born in Seattle, Washington, um, and, but spent most of my childhood in rural Minnesota, uh, a small town called Litchfield, Minnesota. Uh, I stayed in rural Minnesota for college, um, went to Carleton College, and this is really where um, I became exposed to science for the first time. Um, I started uh, washing dishes in a laboratory and then um, really um, found that I had a passion for research and um, joined a research lab. Um, and from there, another really informative, informative experience for me was attending a course um, in Woods Hole, Massachusetts, that was focused on mechanistic cell biology. And that's uh, really the time in my life where I decided I wanted to be a cell biologist. Um, and um, I went on to Yale, uh, where I got my PhD in cell biology. Um, I then did postdoctoral work at um, UCSF in San Francisco, um, where I began um, using biophysical techniques um, to study uh, cells. And then uh, finally, um, I started my independent career at Harvard Medical School and was recruited to UC San Diego about five years ago. Um, I'm also an investigator of the Howard Hughes Medical Institute. My name is Elizabeth Villa Orvija. I'm um, an assistant professor in biological sciences. I was born in Mexico where I did my undergrad in physics, and I was very happy to move to the Midwest with cold temperatures to do my PhD uh, as a Fulbright Fellow. During that time, I was very lucky to start interacting with Joachim Frank, who at the time was in Albany and went on to win the Nobel Prize for cryo-electron microscopy. And that really sort of like turned me into this fantastic field, sort of like really from physics to trying to build methods 
um, for biology. I was also lucky to go to the same place that Sam w- did, which was the physiology course in the marine biology lab during my PhD studies. And that really transformed me into being interested in cell biology. So now being in love both with cryo microscopy and cell biology, I went to the, my postdoc in Germany uh, in a Max Planck Institute for Biochemistry to learn and start to push a method development to use cryoelectron microscopy as a tool in cell biology, uh, which has brought a lot of exciting insights and also what secured that I got a job at wonderful UC San Diego, where I've been since 2014. So my name is Andres Leschziner. Um, I'm a professor in cellular and molecular medicine and in the Division of Biological uh, Sciences. I was uh, born and raised in Buenos Aires, uh, Argentina, and actually started uh, college uh, there. And then halfway through, um, my dad moved to um, Canada, uh, to Toronto, and that gave me uh, the opportunity to move there and continue my college studies in, in Canada. And sort of a, a meaningful sort of twist of fate, um, my, my dad had Parkinson's uh, later on in, in life. And I think if he hadn't moved to Canada, I wouldn't have been able to uh, to basically have the scientific career I've had, and I wouldn't be in the position now uh, to make a difference in our understanding of uh, Parkinson's disease. So I spent a semester in Toronto and then actually finished my degree at McGill um, in Montreal. I actually worked on neurodegenerative diseases as a, an undergraduate um, and then moved to um, uh, to Yale for my PhD. And this is where I fell in love with structural biology. And this is this idea that if you understand how molecules are built in three dimensions, then you can understand how they work as, as little uh, machines. And then I went to uh, Berkeley for my postdoctoral training. And this is where I uh, learned this technique, cryoelectron microscopy, that I will tell you more about uh, uh, today and that it was sort of instrumental for all the work I'll be showing you. And then in uh, 2007, I was recruited to Harvard for my uh, first faculty position. And in 2015, I was recruited here to UC uh, San Diego. Okay, and with that, I'm going to hand it over to Andy. Hi, my name is Andy Shao, and I'm a professor of practice in biological sciences. And compared to the rest of my colleagues, I've taken a little bit more of an unusual path to my position here at UCSD. So like Sam, I spent time at UCSF, and there I got my graduate training in biochemistry and biophysics. And because um, I'm really passionate about structural biology, like Elizabeth and Andres, um, I studied how certain small molecule drugs, um, like the breast cancer drug tamoxifen, um, act on certain proteins in the human body using a technique called X-ray crystallography. Now, this project really excited me about drug discovery. So instead of pursuing a career in academia, I actually went to industry. And over the next 10 years or so, I led small molecule drug discovery programs at two different biotechs. The first was called Teleric, and that was up in the Bay Area. And in 2004, I moved down here to San Diego to join a company called Calypsis, where I was the head of the biology department. Now, circa 2008, things were actually going quite well at Calypsis. We'd built a robust drug discovery engine, and we even had multiple compounds in clinical trials. Um, But then two things happened. So the first one was that our lead compound failed its phase two clinical trial. And around the same time, the Great Recession hit. So you can probably guess uh, what happened next. I ended up with a little bit more time on my hands, let's just say. 
And um, instead of just jumping right into uh, another biotech, um, I actually decided to take a little bit of time off. And I ended up actually being able to do a couple of mini sabbaticals here at UCSD in um, uh, the labs of a couple of my friends here. And that was actually a, a really great experience because it gave me time and uh, the mental space to come up with a new model for academic drug discovery. So in 2009, I partnered with the Ludwig Institute for Cancer Research to start the Small Molecule Discovery, or SMD, program. And um, in this program, we try to blend the best of academic innovation with all the efficiency of virtual drug discovery um, to create something which we call nonprofit biotech. And our core mission is to work uh, closely with um, uh, outstanding academic investigators like Elizabeth, Sam, and Andres um, to take fundamental insights into cell biology and translate them into therapeutic benefit. Okay, let me now tell you uh, about our work on LARC2 and uh, Parkinson's disease. And let's start with a little bit of um, history. And first, uh, some nomenclature. So LARC2 um, stands for Leucine Rich Repeat Kinase 2, which is a mouthful, which is why all of us in the field call the protein just LARC2. Uh, so LARC2 was genetically linked um, to the familial form of Parkinson's disease almost 20 years ago. Um, and a couple of years later, scientists uh, cloned the gene, and that means they were able to read the, the DNA sequence. And that told them that LARC2 was a kinase. And I will tell you more about um, kinases just uh, in a moment. But I want to start by, by saying that we have more than 500 different kinases in our genomes or in our cells. Um, and uh, this is one of the largest protein families uh, we, we have. And as I will point out, they're actually um, relatively easy drug targets for, uh, for therapeutics and relatively obviously being the keyword. Uh, so another important discovery back then is that uh, people showed that patients uh, that had mutations in LARC2 and that had the familiar form of Parkinson's disease, that those mutations led LARC2 to have a higher kinase activity. And that gave people the idea that maybe targeting the kinase that is designing small molecule kinase inhibitors that would stop it might be a way of treating patients suffering with the familial form of Parkinson's uh, disease. Uh, so what is a kinase? So you can think of that kinase as a little bit of uh, like Pac-Man's. I'm going to use the Pac-Man to represent them um, throughout the talk because they do have something that looks like a mouth. And in that mouth, they bind what is the energy currency of the cell called ATP. And what they do is they also bind a target protein, and then they transfer the last one of these orange balls to the other protein. And that ball happens to be a phosphate group. So this now changes the sort of chemical and biological properties of this um, protein. So just a few years ago, another important paper came out. And here what they showed is that patients uh, with the idiopathic or sporadic form of Parkinson's disease, which is the, the, the large uh, majority, um, these people have... LARC2 with no mutations. However, that LARC2 also had increased kinase activity, even though it had no mutations. And that generated a lot more enthusiasm for generating small molecules to target the LARC2 kinase activity as inhibitors, because then you could inhibit LARC2 as a way to treat both forms of Parkinson's disease, not just the familiar form, but also the idiopathic or sporadic. Uh, form. And in fact, uh, just last year, a company called Denali Therapeutics had a couple of compounds uh, go through phase one clinical trials as LARC2 uh, inhibitors. 
So the other thing I want to bring up, um, and this will be important throughout the, the presentation, is that the, the Pac-Man or the kinase can have the mouth in two different forms. It can, the mouth can be either open uh, or closed. And the closed form is the one that allows the kinase to bind this molecule ATP and transfer um, the little orange ball to a target protein. And another important thing that will um, come up um, a few times is that chemists can design uh, small molecules that jam the mouth either in its open form or in its closed form. It doesn't matter how you jam the mouth. Once you do that, now uh, the kinase can no longer buy this and then it cannot do its reaction. That means putting the orange uh, ball in the uh, target uh, protein. Just to drive the point <coughs> further, this is a, a figure that shows all the FDA-approved kinase inhibitors used in the clinic, there are more than 50 starting in 2001. And again, remember, there's a, a huge number of kinases, more than 500. And uh, so the defects in those kinases lead to a number of diseases and, and several have been successfully uh, treated with kinase uh, inhibitors. Again, uh, that means uh, kinases are, are good drug uh, targets in general. So what is the biological function of uh, LARC2? And for us as, as basic Scientists, what this means is, what does LARC2 do inside a cell, which is its natural uh, environment? So a lot is not known about LARC2, but we do know some things. And one thing that we've known for a little bit is that it is somehow involved in transport inside uh, cells. And I wanted to tell you what we mean by transport in cells using a, a nice animation here. And for, let me first introduce the, the players. So this thing you see here that looks like a, a part of a cylinder is called a microtool. It is actually a hollow cylinder. And these are the railroad tracks of the cell. Um, the importance of, of transport is that even though we have trillions of cells in our bodies and each particular cell is so small that we couldn't see it with a naked eye, even though those cells are very tiny to us, they're actually very large in terms of the components inside them. So there are many things in cells that have to get from point A to point B in order for the cell to function uh, properly. And when this doesn't happen, disease often occurs. Um, so cells have ways of organizing this transport. And so these railroad tracks crisscross the cell and allow things to move along them. And the way things move along them is by using these molecular motors. So these same things literally walk along these microtubules with the feet that you see here. And on their back with these sort of paddles that you see get attached to cargo. And in this case, this very large uh, blue blob is a, is, is a bag full of things that have to get somewhere else uh, in the cell. And we actually know quite a bit uh, how this happens because we have the blueprints of all the parts involved. So we under understand the, sort of the mechanics of it. Let me play the animation. And here you can see how the motor like literally walks along the microtubule transporting that. And if we zoom out in the cell, you see all of these tracks crisscrossing the cell. And again, these are the railroad tracks along which uh, things move inside uh, the cell by these machines uh, that, in fact, use ATP as energy the same way that, uh, that the kinase uses it to move that uh, orange ball to a target uh, protein. So the other thing that we've known for a little bit um, is that LARC2 binds to microtubules, that it somehow it sticks to these railroad tracks along which things are transported in, in cells. So to ask that, you know, beg the, the sort of obvious question is, does LARC2 cause traffic jams inside cells? So you could imagine that if LARC2 is binding to these tracks and the motors not bump into that, you might have a traffic jam that would be a problem for the cell. And it's, it's sort of nicer to think about this with an analogy that we can all relate to. So here's a 
um, a nice image of San Diego <clears throat> with its network of, of freeways, highways, and, and, and roads. And you can imagine these uh, lights being, you know, your car if you're getting back to uh, home from, from work or, you know, an Amazon truck if you're waiting for your latest uh, delivery. So on any time of the day, if we zoom into some part of the city <clears throat> and we look into in Google Maps, what you might see is that there is a traffic jam. So in this case, there's a slowdown uh, going from the 5 to the 163 uh, in Balboa Park. So if you're trying to get back home from uh, the south, you know, you're going to be in trouble. So let's say that something like this happens in cells, right? So that we, we have LART2 on the railroad tracks, the motors can move, you have a traffic jam. The question we wanted to answer is, can we fix this, right? And this is basically an engineering uh, problem. So if you want to do something that is engineering, few things are more useful than having the blueprint of the parts involved in the, in the problem. And this is where uh, we came in. So in order to get the blueprints of LART2 and these potential traffic jams, we use this technique that we mentioned a couple of times, cryo-electron microscopy, and we benefited from the, from the amazing cryo-electron microscopy facility here at UC San Diego, where we have a number of state-of-the-art uh, pieces of equipment. These are really large, sophisticated uh, microscopes. And I wanted to play another animation uh, to briefly give you a sense of how we can get these blueprints uh, using electron uh, microscopes. So in this case, uh, we start with a test tube that has um, a solution of the proteins we're interested in. We apply these to a metal grid. We blot excess liquid, and now we plunge this into liquid nitrogen. So it freezes very, very quickly. And these, uh, this traps our molecules in a thin layer of ice. They can't move anymore because they're literally frozen in the ice. We put this in an electron uh, microscope and we collect images that get digitized here um, in the computer. And in the images, we see our molecules that adopt all kinds of orientations in the ice. And then we use computers to sort out molecules into groups that represent the same view. And we have to do this for hundreds of thousands or millions of different individual molecules that you see in this um, animation. And then all of those then get again combined computationally into a map of the molecule into which we can now build the, the chemistry. And this, this, this is the, the really powerful information is understanding the, the structure of this molecule in three-dimensional space at the chemical uh, level. Um, so this is what we did. And the project started with work from Elizabeth's lab. She used uh, a variation of what I just introduced in the video called cryo-electron uh, tomography. So instead of looking at a protein that was pure in a test tube, they actually looked inside the cell. So this is like the natural environment of the protein. And what they saw is that LART2 forms these ribbons that wrap around the microtubules. Remember, these are the tracks uh, along which things are transported in the cell. And LART2 here is in orange and, and blue. And this is what's going on in the cell, right, where, where LART uh, usually uh, functions. What we did in, in my lab is use cryo-electron microscopy, like what I just showed you uh, in the animation, to get a more detailed blueprint of LART2 now in a test tube. So this, this one is not as a natural uh, environment. And I wanted to show another animation just to give you a sense uh, of the kind of information we get from these uh, structures. This is, again, the structure of LART2 that we got using cryo-EM. This is the kinase. So this is the Pac-Man part of LART2. So LART2 has many other bells and whistles, but at its core is the, the Pac-Man. And this indentation you see here is actually the mouth of the Pac-Man. This is where ATP binds and then the phosphate get transferred to the target protein. And the other thing we 
Now, now by having the structure in black are all the uh, Parkinson's disease linked mutations. And now we can start understanding at the chemical level why having a small chemical change in any of these positions increases the activity of the kinase and then eventually understand why that uh, leads to uh, Parkinson's uh, disease. So the, the, so the wealth of information that, that you get by, by having this, this blueprint is just amazing. So what we did then is, is combine the data we had, right? So we took the, the, the detailed blueprint of LARC2 on its own and then put it inside the map that Elizabeth had obtained of LARC2 in cells in their natural environment. And that way we could build a detailed molecular model of how these ribbons would look um, on a microtube. And then remember that the driving question here is, is this bad for transport, right? You can, is this something that would lead to a traffic jam um, in cells? And this is where Sam's lab uh, came in and they're uh, experts in a technique uh, known as single molecule light microscopy. And this is something that allows you to watch individual molecules as they walk along these microtubule um, tracks. And I wanna show you a couple of slides about that because it's just amazing what, uh, what they can do. Um, so in, in, in their case, they basically assemble these microtubule tracks, these hollow tubes in a test tube, and then they can attach them to a glass slide so they can put it in the, uh, in the microscope. And they can also add, like you can see here in green, these are fluorescent labels so they can see the, the microtubules in their microscopy. Uh, images. Um, and they can also now add these motors, just in the, like in the animation I showed you before, the ones that walk along the microtubules. And those are also labeled with uh, some fluorescent uh, molecules so they can also be seen uh, in the microscope. And this is what data looks like. So these, each dot that you see is an individual molecule actually walking along a microtubule. This microtubule is actually kind of S-shaped. These, these guys can bend a little bit. So this is amazing. You can really watch individual molecules like I just showed you uh, in the animation, but, but for real. So then uh, you could do the experiment, right? And you can compare a motor on its own, happily walking along a microtubule versus one where we included LARC2. And remember LARC2 now forms these ribbons. And what we see here is that there is no motion. Um, the flickering you see is actually molecular motors that sort of detach from the microtubule and they just float away. So you don't see them anymore. And some of them are floating around and somehow land on the microtubule uh, and you know, have their two feet attached. Um, so that's the flickering. But whenever a motor is on the microtubule, it can move because a traffic jam was caused by uh, LARC2. So basically using these approaches, we were able to show that indeed, having LARC2 on the railroad tracks uh, leads to roadblocks that could potentially lead to you know, bigger uh, traffic uh, jams. Okay, so let me tell you about something else uh, we learned from building these um, these molecular models of the, the ribbons from LARC2, because this is the major insight in terms of the therapeutic angle that we're interested in, in taking. So when we're building this um, model, it became clear that in order for this to form, the mouth of LARC2, of the Pac-Man, had to be closed. So this would be the structure that would form the ribbon. And uh, what we predicted is that if you were able to jam the mouth in its open state, then this could not form. And remember, I told you at the beginning that um, chemists can make uh, small molecules that jam either the open, or the open, sorry, or the closed form of the mouth, right? Both of them inhibit the kinase activity. So in terms of the ultimate effect, um, they're the same. But what we predicted is that if we were to use one of these, 
then we might prevent the formation of the ribbons. So the experiment then again, which was done in, in Sam's lab using the single molecule um, approaches is now we're gonna use an inhibitor that jams the mouth in the open form. And we predicted that that then would prevent this from forming. And indeed that was the case. When we added this compound, the motors were no longer inhibited even though LARC2 was around because it wasn't forming uh, these ribbons. Now, an important thing to say now is that there are no LARC2-specific inhibitors that jam the mouth in the open form. What we use is an inhibitor that was designed to treat a, a type of cancer, so a different kinase. But remember, I told you we have more than 500 different kinases. They're all sort of, you know, cousins, close, closer distance cousins, but they're all related. And so an inhibitor could have actually unintended effects and hits other kinases. So specificity when you're designing a drug is one of the big challenges when you have so many members in the same sort of family as it is the case for uh, kinases. So in this case, we can use this molecule in our experiments in the test tube because the only kinase we have around is LAR2, you could not give this to patients because you would be inhibiting other kinases and have undesired uh, side effects. Uh, so going back to the, um, uh, the table of kinase inhibitors I showed you earlier, I have now color-coded them in terms of their type. And this is getting a little detailed, but basically what the, the ones I showed you that would jam the kinase with the mouth closed are known as type one. The ones that jam the kinase with the mouth open are known as uh, type two. There are other types, it doesn't matter. But the point here is that uh, successful inhibitors have been designed of different types. So there's a track record for designing inhibitors that jam the, uh, the mouth uh, open that inhibit uh, the kinase. So, I mean, the big point here is that, yes, the, the, the ultimate effect of kinase inhibitors is by definition to inhibit the kinase. So no matter what you use, if you jam the kinase either in its closed or open form, you will prevent it from transferring that little orange uh, ball to the target protein. So that the end effect is the same. But what our work shows is that we need to pay close attention to what the effects of the specific molecule you use are in the cells, right? So if we use the inhibitor that jams the mouth in the closed form, then we're gonna prevent transform because we're going to have uh, these uh, ribbons that, that act as roadblocks. And then we're going back to that situation in Balboa Park where you can't get to uh, the 163 from uh, the 5. So we don't want that. On the other hand, what we want is to still jam the kinase because remember the ultimate goal is to stop the kinase. Uh, but that way uh, we will allow transport to continue and we wouldn't have these uh, traffic jams. We would be which would be undesired uh, side effects of the uh, drug treatment. So the problem is that the current inhibitors I mentioned at the beginning from Denali Therapeutics are actually of this type, are the ones that will lead to traffic jams, even though they do inhibit the kinase, and, you know, as they were intended uh, to do. So what we want to do is design inhibitors that jam the mouth in the open state, still inhibiting the, the kinase, so the the ultimate effect is, is the same, but allowing transport to uh, to take place. So this would we think would be an improved inhibitor with uh, with fewer toxic uh, side effects. So I wanted to end by saying that what we're really excited about uh, LARC2, uh, not only uh, for its therapeutic potential, which is what I what I told you about uh, today, but also because we think we think um, it can give us a window into the molecular basis of Parkinson's disease. I think, like most of you um, know. 
we don't really understand what causes Parkinson's disease, right? We understand the later stages of the disease and how damage in the brain uh, leads to that. But we don't understand at the very beginning what is going wrong in a cell that triggers the development of the disease. And the fact that, that we now have these detailed blueprints of the, of the machines involved, and then we can understand how they work and tweak them, uh, I think we can then start understanding biologically uh, what, what starts uh, the, the disease. And of course, if we understand this, the new therapeutic avenues will be uh, open. So with that, uh, we would be very happy to uh, take any questions you have and, and tell you anything else you want to know about our work. Thanks again so much for uh, joining us. Wonderful. That is just really exciting to see the uh, progress in the real basic molecular pathways that are causing issues with transport of proteins and causing the roadblocks and uh, excellent to try to stop traffic jams in all forms. So thank you so much for that excellent presentation. And now I'm very excited to open this up for questions with Sam, Elizabeth, Andy and Andres. Uh, so I think uh, I will go ahead and start off with some of the questions that have been here in the uh, Q&A. Actually, one right now. I'm curious, do, this is also something I'm interested in, <laughs> do dopaminergic neurons have higher levels of expression of LARC2? Is that known? Sam, do you want to take that one? Um, yeah, I can take a stab at this one. Um, that's a really good question. It's actually... Um, I think something that we as researchers are really interested in. Um, what we do know, and so I don't have a complete answer for you, but what we do know is that there are cells that um, essentially uh, live around your neurons, um, and, and these cells or, or microglia um, have been shown to have higher levels of LARC2 expression than some neurons. And so one thing that researchers are really interested in right now is if sort of these helper cells that are around neurons might be important for um, thinking about um, uh, targeted uh, treatments for Parkinson's disease. Um, uh, but that said, I'll, I'll be happy to hear what other people have to say about this. Great. No, I think that's good. I mean, I think it's still an area of, you know, that's what research does. It opens more questions that need to be probed. And uh, it's fantastic that we're linked in with your group to, to explore more of that. Uh, one other question, maybe also difficult to, in your LARC2 research, do you expect to find that there may be different types of Parkinson's disease? Um, anybody amongst the panel want to try to capture can, that one? I can take a a shot of that. But yeah, I think that's a great question. I think one of the things probably I, I find most uh, fascinating, and we know already that uh, LARC2 with different Parkinson's linked mutations behave differently biochemically or in terms of where they are in the cell. So it's possible that that leads to different sort of malfunctions in the cell. It's possible that all of them lead eventually to the same disease, you know, downstream from the cellular effects, but we're really interested in understanding whether the different mutations um, lead to different problems. And this is partly what we're funded to do by the, by the aligning science across uh, Parkinson's. And also because if we understand that different mutants start the disease in different ways, then we can have therapies that are even more targeted. And of course, that would reduce uh, side effects. So I think this is a very exciting area of research for, for all of us. And from a clinical point of view, uh, patients are similar, but not exactly the same. Uh, so there may be some characteristics that are not present in people that do have LRRK2 as a mutation. 
And so, for example, the what we call prodromal uh, phase, that is uh, having the enacting of the dreams, is not as common in people that do have LRRK2 or the olfaction loss may be not as common. So there are some things that are similar, almost indistinguishable, but not exactly, exactly the same. Right. Excellent. And I think related to the topic that Andres just mentioned about different variants, can we talk about the GBA variant and whether it is at all related here? The question specifically is, does this, does this work affect the prognosis for people with GBA variants or is it strictly LARC? That's, yeah, that's a really great question. Um, and so um, I think many of you probably know that um, LARC2 is one of the most common um, uh, forms of uh, mutations found in familial Parkinson's disease, and the other really um, common one is mutations in this um, another enzyme that's called GBA. Um, it's um, and that this is a really um, really hot area of research, and, and there's um, some publications that are just starting to come out suggesting there might be links between um, the two. We don't know um, exactly what those links are yet, but um, I think one thing that our team is excited about is because we're part of this aligning science across Parkinson's. Um, uh, group, there are groups there that are focusing on GBA, and there are groups like ours focusing on LARC2. And so, what we really hope to do is, you know, those um, through those interactions, um, really um, make some inroads into that really important question that you asked. All right, uh, excellent. I will mark that one as answered. And I wanted to ask about, I guess, a similar vein here uh, in terms of different types and whether traditional Parkinson's treatments may work differently in LARC2 patients than others? Irene, perhaps, do you feel like there may be a different response to therapeutics in LARC2? Absolutely. Patients? There could be a, a different response. It would be much more um, uh, therapeutic or much more focused to go against something that you know is completely the cause of the illness than something that contributes that is a little bit different. So I think that uh, knowing whether you do have LRRK2 is extremely important because it may allow you to, in fact, get a specific treatment for your mutation. Maybe, Great. Go ahead. I'd be curious, you know, what Irene, what you think of this, but one, one, one paper, that publication that we've all read came out um, a couple of years ago um, and suggested that in idiopathic Parkinson's disease, um, patients um, can also have elevated LRRK2 kinase activity. And so, um, you know, that um, to us uh, sort of suggested that targeting um, the LARC2 could potentially be a useful therapeutic in idiopathic cases as well. Is that good at the correct reading of that? Absolutely. But we don't know then if that is the main cause or not. Gotcha. So I think that that understanding more the pathophysiology is needed. Yeah. So what you're doing is great because it helps us in that direction as well. Fantastic. Great. Okay. So I think that relates then to a question here that was how will therapeutics that target LARC2 impact the treatment of Parkinson's disease? And I think essentially that, that that's kind of been answered to, to, uh, uh, describe the intervention in the very earliest phases of a deposition of, say, alpha-synuclein potentially or 
Uh, any other elaboration on that about specifically how you think the uh, therapeutics targeting this kinase may impact the treatment of Parkinson's disease? Uh, if you go with a mutation, that is the main cause. And if you go with someone that, you know, that has this abnormality, as everybody that has Parkinson's disease do, uh, may contribute as well. And perhaps that leads to a cure. I'm not saying that that is not. And cure is relatively. What I'm trying to get at is uh, just that the disease doesn't progress. It doesn't ever uh, make the symptoms that do occur or have occurred uh, change because those imply that there have been cells that have died. Great. Okay, so here's a very specific question. I hope uh, sounds uh, like coming from a scientist, perhaps. Uh, in your experiments with LARC2, are those done in neurons or in microglia? If in neurons, do you observe synapse loss because of the impaired transport of vesicles down the microtubules? Tom, you want to take that one? Yeah. Uh, I mean, maybe Elizabeth and I can each say something about this because we've studied this in different ways. So, I mean, Elizabeth, do you want to start with the cells that you use? Sure. Uh, we started with a cell line that is actually not in neurons just to start looking at the assay because we knew that this had been observed before. So we, we can manipulate the cells very well and look at it for the first time. Now we're excited to move into cell lines that can be patient-derived and then made into dopaminergic neurons, glia, and different ones. Um or, or other cell lines that actually have high levels of LAR2 to try to investigate that, you know, the cellular mechanisms of LAR2 in health so that we can also understand how in disease it would go sideways. So that's, that, those are all really, that's actually a really good question that we're very excited to look at um, shortly. Yeah. And, yeah. And Sam, I'm sure. yeah, I can add a tiny bit. Um, so um, I think like Elizabeth said, um, you know, one of the things our Lending Science Across Parkinson's uh, grant will help fund is um, being able to ask those questions in um, um, uh, dopaminergic neurons or microglia. Um, but the experiments that my lab did um, for the work that, that Andres talked about um, were actually, we, we purified proteins. So we take these molecules outside of cells and we can actually um, uh, build microtubules essentially in a test tube and then take these molecular motors and take LARC2, again, just pure components and add them to those tracks. And so we're really studying um, how these molecules work. Um, and that gives us insights for then designing our experiments when we go back into neurons, for example. Fantastic. So I, and then building on that as well, here's another question about just commenting on the amazing visualizations of your small molecule. Have you thought of looking at other candidate therapies with cryo-EM to see all kinds of molecular mechanisms? <laughs> I guess the answer is probably yes, but maybe you can elaborate a little bit. <laughs> Andres, take it away. Uh, yeah, I mean, definitely, obviously, you know, other people have, have been looking at other uh, targets involved in, uh, in Parkinson's disease. Right now, we're, we're focusing on understanding uh, LARD, partly because, um, as I mentioned, one is this potential link to the idiopathic form of, of the disease, but also because it's a kinase. And so of the known uh, sort of proteins involved in the disease is the most druggable. So it's, it's the one where it's easiest uh, to design a small molecule that can inhibit it. Right. And Andy, Andy can probably also add 
something to that if you want to. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, we're, we're basically, um, uh, well, Andres is, is part of the revolution uh, with respect to uh, single particle uh, cryo-electron microscopy. And that is absolutely pushing the boundaries of what we can do in terms of computational design and drug discovery, right? I mean, there were targets that, you know, I, I alluded it I alluded to it in the, uh, my introduction. Um, my lab is primarily focused on using x-ray crystallography, and that has limitations on kind of the size of proteins that we can look at. But now we can look at these enormous proteins, these really complex molecular machines, and at a resolution where we can actually see these very small molecules bound. And so, um, yeah, I mean, I think this is really pushing forward um, the boundaries of what we can do uh, both for LARC2, but then, yeah, a wide array of uh, other targets as well, ion channels, GPCRs, and so forth. The beauty of, of cryo-EM is it allows you to design uh, the actual drugs. So I think it is uh, phenomenal because here you have really how it is, and, and that's why you're saying the open or closed mouth, <laughs> right. but right. I thought it was a phenomenal analogy. Yeah, great. And I, I really enjoyed hearing the background of our scientists and how they made it into uh, this field. And I uh, overlap a little bit in the Fulbright program with, uh, yeah. and then actually did some x-ray crystallography during oh, that wow. time. And so <laughs> in Israel for a year, really exciting times looking at acetylcholinesterase because my field's on the Alzheimer's. But I just, I thought that it was a nice segue into how UC San Diego has really invested big into this concept of imaging as an approach <laughs> to deliver new therapeutics and new discoveries. And, and it really builds on our legacy of uh, Roger Chen, who was a uh, Nobel Prize winning scientist here at UCSD, who really you know, innovated some of the new approaches to image neurons. And I think we've just completed a number of new recruits uh, that are all going to be looking at this molecular uh, imaging all the way up to full-scale human imaging. And I just think it's a really exciting niche that we are going to be able to lead the world in. Uh, let me get back to a couple other questions here. Uh, there's a number of questions saying, when do we think we might see new targeted therapeutics? So I'll knock off a number of these. And, and uh, I think I can, uh, and a related question is, uh, will you be working with biotech companies in trying to push this forward? And then finally, do you know the results of Denali Therapeutics um, uh, LARC two phase one clinical trial. Any information about their preclinical results in animal models of PD? So, just broadly, what's the status of bringing these forward from the bench all the way to the bedside? Yeah, I think Andy's uh, next right here. <laughs> <laughs> um, right. So that's uh, a lot to digest. So let's see. Um, so maybe we start with where is uh, Denali? So um, we know what uh, has been publicly disclosed, which is um, they have uh, uh, initiated clinical trials. And in terms of the phase one trial, as far as uh, we understand 
the molecule is safe um, and uh, certainly um, safe enough, I guess, to uh, progress into phase two trials, which would be where you would start to analyze efficacy. Um, and then at the same time, um, there's some compelling evidence that uh, the inhibitor is working on the pathway because there, there are effects um, on uh, cellular phosphorylation of downstream targets, right? So um, that, again, gives you confidence that uh, the compound is um, working on the mechanism of interest, right? So in terms of when, um, that is a, a very, <laughs> uh, that, that's a very good question, but I don't think there's an easy answer to that, right? Yeah. Because um, frankly, it's the very first time that a therapy of this type has been investigated. So uh, there's a lot of learning that goes along the way. You know, again, looking at the uh, recent you know trials with the pandemic, right? I mean, you know, it, it, you're learning, right? This is a living experiment and all of that. But you know, what I would say is is that if Denali is committed to doing their phase two trial. Um, you know, they will be working quickly and hopefully we will be getting a sign about, you know, what these types of inhibitors do, at least the first generation, right, in terms mm -hmm. of this mechanism. Great. Um, that sounds great. Excellent. Oh, go ahead. Yeah. yeah. Sorry. And then um, in terms of, uh, you know, that's all great news for patients, right? We're absolutely thrilled that someone has essentially taken the leap and tried to tackle this target from a clinical perspective. And then, you know, just to, you know, add a little comment about where we fit in the picture, um, uh, uh, our work um, is essentially trying to design the next generation of inhibitors, right? I mean, um, we're, again, very excited that Denali has decided to push forward, but we think we might be able to do it better, right? And I think it's really important to start to do that work now because um, it's, yeah, think of your iPhone, right? I mean, Apple does not wait for the release of a current generation of iPhone before they start trying to improve and make the next generation of iPhone. And so, we're really excited about the ideas we have. We think we have some really terrific insights um, and, you know, a roadmap to follow. So um, we would really like to, you know, again, engage in that kind of work and hopefully, you know, make something uh, even better while something is progressing in the clinic right now. Fantastic. Thank you so much for that. I think it, it really bodes well for the, uh, that it may be a nearer term, uh, you know, that, uh, that people have all been hoping for. And th thanks for your work on that. Uh, a couple of questions, and Irene is uh, typing an answer to this. How, what's required for a PD patient to find out if they have GBA, LARC2, or idiopathic Parkinson's disease? And also, how do you find out if a person with Parkinson's has the LARC2 uh, gene? Well, we do have a study that is the PD gene. Um, and the study itself uh, looks at all these genes. So if you participate in those studies, then uh, you will be able to know whether you do or not have uh, this gene or other gene. It, it, it does focus to genes that are known, not to those that are unknown. Okay, and I think uh, bridging to that, there's a question about... Uh, oh, go ahead. Yeah. I want to clarify something just to make sure that everyone understands. We all have the LAR2 gene, right? It's a normal component of our cells. The question is whether you carry a mutation in the protein that makes it function abnormally. And the other question that we've been sort of discussing is there is some evidence that even patients who have a normal LAR2 may still have a hyperactive protein that may be linked somehow to the disease that otherwise doesn't have a, a clear genetic uh, component. Fantastic. That's great. Thanks for that clarification. Uh, 
And so I guess related in the genetic transmission of Parkinson's disease, uh, Irene, do patients with idiopathic PD have the same or reduced risk of transmitting PD to the next generation as those with non-idiopathic PD? Not at all. The idiopathic doesn't transmit to the next generation. Right. Thank you for that. Is there any research being conducted at UCSD related to Parkin and young onset PD or uh, later onset PD? P-R-K-N, Gene. So, yeah, I'm most familiar with Parkin research through our participation with Aligning Science Across Parkinson's and uh, the Michael J. Fox Foundation. Um, But maybe others uh, have have more to say um, than that. But I, I do think that for us, those networks are incredibly important and because we are all talking about the cell biological and molecular basis of, of Parkinson's disease and sharing um, our findings as they happen. Um, Atlantic Science Across Parkinson's has set up this network that really helps us do that, um, but maybe if other people have things to add to that. No, I think uh, I think that's one of the amazing aspects of of our center is that uh, we are able to link up across uh, cross fertilize. I've always mentioned this at each of these uh, at each of these uh, sessions that uh, UCSD really has this environment that breaks down silos where people are willing to collaborate and and you see people coming across who never had any really experience any real experience within neurodegenerative illnesses interacting with others, bringing in new ideas. Uh, Tonight, in fact, at our uh, internal research council meeting that I really enjoy, where we bring in people from all across the campus and talk about the new exciting uh, innovations that are going to be taking place. And then just you just see people making collaborations right and left. So I think it won't be long before we're aware of some of the other work going on and in other molecular pathways. Uh, question uh, here. Oh, was, go ahead. Yep. There was a study actually for GBA yes. uh, that was conducted and completed. And unfortunately that study did not show any benefits. So it was closed. Yeah. Um, but that was a study that was done at UCSD. And certainly we have uh, therapeutics to slow disease progression in idiopathic Parkinson's disease, not on those that have a specific mutation or a specific known gene to be targeted. Great. Um, Do you uh, have a way that you might be able to image the transport of levodopa inside cells? This Mm. is a question that somebody brought forward. Not that we know of, it sounds like. Nothing jumping to mind, at least. Yeah. So I think that's uh, one of the questions, you know, since levodopamine is so relevant and important and looking at how it uh, uh, goes from place to place, at least in humans or in cell models, not as easy. And uh, would it make sense to test kinase inhibitor drugs developed for cancer or inflammatory diseases on Parkinson's? I think that would be a uh, very reasonable starting point. Um, but as uh, Andreas mentioned, um, some of these kinase inhibitors um, already have side effects, right? And so um, I think what we want to do, uh, because, you know, in particular with this this condition, um, we can be very, very targeted. We can start with those kinds of molecules, but then chemically modify them um, to make them even more selective for LARC2 and therefore design them, what I would say, be a cleaner therapeutic. Great. Great. So I guess uh, we, we, 
we can distinct we can what we're doing now is we are testing available inhibitors in the sort of test tube experiments that that Sam mentioned to see whether they relieve the, the roadblocks for the motor. So at least we know where act, they're acting on the kinase, and then we can tell Andy, and Andy learns about the chemistry of those, and then he can come up with new molecules that might be specific for LAR2 rather than the other ones that were designed for different kinases. So okay. The testing in patients versus the testing in, in the test tube to come up with ideas that could eventually lead to the clinic. All right. Okay. We're tr- we actually we had a lot of time for questions, and now we get we're getting quite a few though. So there is now a link up uh, for the uh, Parkinson's disease trials that are uh, recruiting. Uh, it's noted that uh, family history. It's just a question about family history. Uh, a person whose father has Parkinson's. So far, he's the only one we know of in his family history have gotten PD. What are the chances that his children might get PD? I think Irene kind of mentioned that. If it's an idiopathic PD, it would not necessarily uh, increase the chances. Uh, is that would that is that accurate, Irene? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So that one's been answered. Okay, I want to wrap up with one question that's leading because it sounds this really exciting, large $7.2 million grant from the Aligning Science Across Parkinson's Disease. What is the funding for? What will you accomplish? I can start and we, we all have, we're all really excited about this. Um, you know, our, so the Aligning Science Across Parkinson's is really, um, the goal of the project is to um, understand the um, biological uh, basis of, of, um, of Parkinson's disease. So, uh, so we want to understand what LARC2 does normally in a cell to try and understand what happens when LARC2 is carrying a mutation. I should say, um, to be really clear, that Aligning Science Across Parkinson's in this particular phase of, of uh, research funding is not funding our work to try and develop a new therapeutic. Um, so we're, we're looking for other avenues to do that work. Um, but what, what that project does allow is um, this collaborative project between our labs to try and understand what the LARC2 protein normally does and then what goes wrong in disease. Fantastic. Okay. Well, we're at the one minute mark and I just want to really thank all of you as the speakers and and the attendees for a very exciting session uh, today. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.